Well, uh, we come to a new series today. In the two and a half years or so that I have left here, um, I plan to preach three book series. I don't mean that that's going to cover every single Sunday, but largely the Sundays will be filled with three book series. One this mor- beginning this morning on James. One uh, beginning uh, the beginning of next year on the book of Revelation. And then the final one in 2024 on Second Timothy. And I have a reason for preaching each of these series. The reason I'm preaching through James is because ever since the 1970s, I've been using James in one-to-one discipleship meetings with other men. But I've never preached through it. And every time I go through it with someone, I say to myself, man, there's so much great stuff here. I really need to preach through this one day. And so it's finally happening. Now this series will be about 19 sermons long, beginning this spring, and then we'll take a summer break and resume again in the fall. But let me introduce the book of James a little bit for you. Of the 27 books in the New Testament, 21 of them are epistles, letters. And those epistles in the New Testament are divided into two groups. And conveniently, they are clumped in our Bibles so that uh, we don't have to, they're not intermixed, so they're easy to keep apart. First come the Pauline epistles, the epistles of Paul. Then there are what is called the general epistles or the Catholic epistles, not referring to the Catholic Church, but to the fact that they are universal, that they are not written targeted to a certain church or a certain individual, but were written to, a, to a, a large, undefined group. And uh, they include Hebrews, James, 1st and 2nd Peter, 1st and 2nd, 3rd John, and Jude, besides the book of James. It just so happens that they are also the epistles that were not written by Paul. Paul never wrote. One. If it would be much more complicated if Paul had written a letter to General, then it would be more complicated. But he didn't, and so it's easy. So we come to James. James, you know, um, think about the Old Testament. There are history books, historical books in the Old Testament. Then there are uh, poet, poet books of poetry. Then there's books of prophecy. And so we come to the New Testament. And, you know, if, if there's going to be a New Testament, you expect there to be some kind of similarity. And so, yes, we have the Gospels there, the historical books, and the book of Acts. And you have the book of Revelation, which is the, you know, the, the prophecy. The, the, uh... But instead of books of poems, the other third is filled with epistles. No epistles in the Old Testament. Now, this is significant because James is most likely the first epistle, the oldest epistle, the first one that was written down and circulated. Probably written several years before Paul penned the book of the epistle to the Galatians, which is this, probably the second oldest 
the second youngest book in the uh, um, in the New Testament. The oldest, yes. You get the point. Um, there are probably um, other writings that were um, preceded this. Um, I love in the uh, TV show um, The Chosen how they have Matthew always writing everything down that happens. And that's because there's good reason to think that there were uh, lists of things Jesus said, you know, records of things Jesus had done that were later compiled into the Gospels. But, um, but they, none of the books was finalized until after James was written, it seems. Now this morning we're just going to read the first verse of the book of James. So, get ready, here it comes. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes who are dispersed abroad, greetings. Now, there are three things that I'd like to reflect on from this verse this morning. The first is the author, James. The second is the intended audience of the letter, what he says here, the twelve tribes who are dispersed abroad. And then finally, I'd like to talk about something which is uniquely absent from this verse. So let's start with James and who he was. There are four Jameses in the New Testament. So which James was the one who wrote this letter? Well, one of the Jameses is out of the running right away because he's only mentioned a couple times as the father of one of the disciples, the disciple Judas Thaddeus. Two others of the Jameses were among the twelve apostles. James was such a popular name that there are two apostles named James. James, the son of Zebedee, the brother of John, James and John, and James, the son of Alphaeus. But neither of these are likely the writer of the letter either. And the reason we, don't, we think that is because the son of Alphaeus, even though he's an apostle, is so obscure that there's no mention of him except when the list of apostles is given. Otherwise, we know nothing about anything he did except that he was one of the apostles. The, J- James, the other James, the son of Zebedee, who was an apostle, uh, he was a very prominent apostle, and even in Jesus' inner circle. But it seems, you remember, he was the one who was martyred early on in the book of Acts. And it seems he was martyred before this letter could have been written. And therefore, he is probably not the author of this letter. This leaves us with the other James by process of elimination. And this other James was also very prominent in the New Testament. He was the brother of Jesus. So most scholars have concluded that James was likely, that James the brother of Jesus was likely the author of this epistle. And since I'm going to preach on this assumption, let's talk a little bit more 
about this James, the brother of Jesus. According to Matthew 13.55, Jesus and Mary, Joseph and Mary had four sons besides Jesus, after Jesus. James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas, not Iscariot, of course, in that order. So James was actually the next brother down from Jesus. The next one in line, the one closest in age to Jesus. So Jesus and James grew up together. Presumably Jesus knew, I'm sorry, presumably James knew Jesus, at least humanly speaking, better than anyone else on earth. Another thing we know about James is that before the cross, at least, he didn't believe in Jesus. His own brother. As it says in John 7, 5, not even his brothers believed in him. So what turned James around? Well, the pivotal moment seems to have been after Jesus was raised from the dead, he appeared individually to James. We're told this in 1 Corinthians 15.7. Jesus had a number of appearances after the resurrection to the women, to the apostles, to all the believers, the 500, to James, and, but then to James. Personally, privately, he appeared to his brother James. Not to Mary, you know, maybe she was in the 500, um, maybe she was even among the women, but, but individually, personally, to his brother James. And according to Acts 1.14, by the time of Jesus' ascension, which is just days after he appeared to James, you know, at most 40 days, but likely less than that, all of Jesus' brothers had come to believe in him. So, if James is the author of this letter, the brother of Jesus... Why would he introduce himself as the bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ instead of introducing himself as the brother of Jesus, the Lord? Well, it seems to me that, uh, you know, we're left here guessing to an extent, but it seems to me that James is putting into practice what he instructs nine verses later in the epistle. When he says, the brother of humble circumstances is to glory in his high position. And the rich man is to glory in his humiliation. Because like flowering grass, he will pass away. And, and we'll, I can't wait till we get to that passage. It's one of my favorite passages in the whole Bible. But in human terms, you see, G, G, I'm sorry, James is a rich man for being the brother of Jesus. By referring to himself as the, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, instead of as the brother of Jesus, James is glorying in his poverty instead of glorying in his riches. The fact is, being the brother of Jesus isn't what gave James the authority to admonish other Christians as he does here in this epistle. 
What qualified James to write such a letter was not his physical relationship to Jesus, but his spiritual relationship to Jesus. That's why he calls himself a servant of Christ instead of a brother of Christ. We said that this James had a prominent role in the New Testament. So let's talk a little bit more about that. It wasn't long before James, even though he was a young man, you know, he was younger than Jesus. Jesus, we think, died around 33. So James was maybe 31, 32 at the most. So he's a young man. But it wasn't long before he assumed a prominent leadership role in the church at Jerusalem. Something like being the pastor of that church, the main church, the mother church. We see this when Paul was converted in Acts 9. And then we're told in Galatians 1 that he went to Jerusalem, Paul did, to present himself to the apostles. Since he had been killing them all, you know, he wanted to to say, I've become a Christian and present himself to them. He went there and we're told that the only leaders that were present at the time he came were Peter and, quote, James, the Lord's brother. So he was already a leader in the church by that time. Then when Paul went again to Jerusalem 14 years later, Galatians, when he was ready to begin ministering as basically an apostle, Galatians 2.9 tells us that three men who were pillars of the church gave him and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship to endorse his call to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. And who were those three men? James, Peter, and John. We also see it in Acts 12.17. Remember that story about when the angels sprung Peter from prison? And there was a house of people that were praying for him and he went and reported to them what had happened so they could give thanks to the Lord. Remember that old story? Remember Rhoda came to the door? Well, one of the things that Jesus said to them when he spoke to them and told them what happened was, make sure to report to James what has happened. So here's Peter, the big apostle, and he's saying, make sure that you tell James what's going on. So James is obviously a very important person. And then finally, remember from our story of 2 Corinthians from our study of 2 Corinthians, that Paul collected an offering from the Gentiles to bring the Gentile churches to bring to Jerusalem for the poor in the church there? Well, when Paul and the others who traveled with him finally got to Jerusalem, the f- one of the first things that they did was to meet with James and the elders of the Jerusalem church. Acts 21, 17 and 18. So clearly James was a leader, perhaps the main, probably the main leader of the church of Jerusalem. We also know that James played an important role in the council of Jerusalem, the first church council in Acts chapter 15. When you know, they had debate, and people stood up and made their remarks, and when it was all done, it, said that, it says that James got up. 
and said, it is my judgment that we do not trouble the, 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 the discussion was about whether Gentiles were to be included in the church without first becoming Jews. So finally at the end, James got up and said, it is my judgment that we do not trouble those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles, but should write to them. And, uh, and that proposal was accepted by the apostles, the elders, and the entire assembly in Acts 15, 12 to 22. So whatever was going on, and whatever role James played, it was obvious that not only was he a prominent figure in the leadership of the church of Jerusalem, he was a prominent figure in the leadership of the church at large in the whole world at that time. James probably wrote his epistle just before the question of including the Gentiles in the church became a big issue. So before the Council of Jerusalem. Because he doesn't mention anything to do with all that in his epistle. So that's an assumption, but, but it makes sense. Paul had already become a Christian by the time James uh, wrote his epistle. The church in Antioch had probably already started. And maybe Paul was even called already to Antioch to help Barnabas there. But James, as I said, probably wrote his letter before um, the controversy began to heat up about the Gentiles being engrafted into this church. And assuming that all this is correct about when it was written, and this is pretty much you know the going thing, it's not just what I think, um, that means that James, the epistle of James represents the earliest form of Christianity that we have in a sense. Um, you know, obviously the things that Jesus taught could be seen as the earliest form of Christianity. And... Um, and, you know, they were written and published in their present form after James, but, but they were clearly said and jotted down in notes before. So I don't mean to say that it's somehow pre, it is before that, except in just its final form. And, and even the, when we look at the book of James, it, it bears much more similarity to the teachings of Jesus than it does to the teachings of Paul. And so there is a primitive aspect to it that gives us insight into um, pre-Paul Christianity. Now, let's turn to the second thing, and that's the, the intended audience for this letter. Paul, James says, to the 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad. Now, that's a strange way to address a letter to a bunch of Christians. Obviously, when you say 12 tribes, you immediately think of the 12 tribes of Israel. And especially since James is a Jew, it makes sense that that's what he was talking about. So you remember that there were the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Then Jacob had 12 sons. And each one of those sons had his own family, and then the family became a clan, and then the clan became a tribe. And so you had the 12 tribes of Jacob, or the 12 tribes of Israel, because his name is changed from Jacob to Israel. And so um, that was the 12 tribes of Israel. But then remember what happened. The Assyrians came, and then the Babylonians came, and they attacked, and they conquered various parts of the land. 
of the, and the twelve tribes of Israel were scattered and exiled to various locations. But the prophets, Isaiah, the prophet Ezekiel, the prophet Jeremiah, the prophet Zechariah, they promised that God would one day regather the twelve tribes, the scattered tribes of Israel, and bring them home. And so this was an expectation of the Jews. And it was connected, because it was connected to this in the prophets themselves, it was connected to the coming of the Messiah. And so when Jesus came and chose 12 disciples, there were things which made it seem like he was beginning to bring this to pass. In fact, in Matthew 19.28, Jesus says to his disciples, I tell you the truth, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So Jesus himself is clearly connecting the twelve tribes with the twelve apostles. By referring then to his readers as the twelve tribes, James calls to attention the fulfillment of the prophetic promises about regathering the people of God. Eventually, the gathering of the Gentiles to Christ came to be seen as part of this. We, in a sense, are Jews by faith who, have been, who are being regathered to Christ from all the four corners of the earth. But at this point, when James wrote the letter, it seems that James was primarily referring to Jewish Christians and directing his letter to them, uh, which is the same case in the book of Hebrews, which was directed towards Hebrew Christians, Jewish Christians. Now, I could go into more detail of this, but I don't want to get wrapped around just giving more and more information. So we'll skip it. There's some more in the notes you can look at if you'd like. To also give more evidence that this was written to Jews. But this raises the question of where these Jewish Christians were to which to whom James was writing. I mean, we know about the church in Jerusalem. You just read the book of Acts, you know about the church in Jerusalem. And then you know, starting in chapter like 11, you know about the church in Antioch. But before Paul goes out with Barnabas and begins, you know, preaching the gospel in the Gentile lands, that's all you know about. And yet here's James, he's writing a letter that predates that episode in Paul's life, supposedly, and he's sending it out to the dispersed Jewish Christians. Well, who are they? Well, we actually know very little about what was going on in the rest of the world with regard to Christianity at this time. Um, Outside of Jerusalem and Antioch, uh, we don't even know how the churches in Rome and Alexandria began. Um, You know, the three largest cities in the ancient world at this time were Rome, Antioch, and Alexandria. But we're not given any information about how the gospel got to Rome or Alexandria or the church began there. 
But there's one important thing for us to remember in all of this. Jesus himself said in Acts 15.21, I'm sorry, James himself, said in Acts 15.21, from ancient generations, Moses has been preached in every city and read in the synagogues every Sabbath. And he's not just talking about Israel, he's talking about the world. So because the Jews have been scattered, there were Jews in cities all over the world. And, and all you had to have was ten men, male Jews, to start a synagogue. And so there are many, many cities that had synagogues around the world. And Acts 2, 5-11 to 11 tells us that at Pentecost, when Jews from all over the world gathered for the festival of, the, of Pentecost that there were Jews from every nation under heaven there. Parthians, Medes, Elamites, the residents of Mesopotamia, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, Libya, Cyrene, Rome, Crete, Arabia. So there were Jews from all over the world. And remember, that very first day, 3,000 of them became Christians. And within a few more days, it had risen to 5,000. Who knows how many it ended up being. But eventually, most of those folks returned home. We don't know, you know how, when, and how. We know that the ones who still remained after a while in Jerusalem were driven out by the persecution that arose after the stoning of Stephen. And we're also told that as those went out, they went out preaching the gospel. So you know that all these Christians who become Christians at Pentecost from cities all over the Roman Empire and even beyond, when they returned home, they brought the gospel back to their communities. They brought the gospel back to their synagogues. And thus it is that churches started in, in other places. So it didn't... It didn't, we don't have to have the, the details in the story, but that's... Now let me, t- ask, let me remind you of something else. All those Christians in Jerusalem, Pete, James knows them. James is among the leadership of the church. And now they're going home, and he still cares about them. And so it seems that James is writing a letter to all of these people who were in Jerusalem and have now scattered, and to the ones who have become Christians through them in various places of the world. So that's what the book of James seems to be. A letter, it's not just a detached group that, you know, like we would write a letter to the Christians of Madagascar. But James is writing to a familiar group to him. And he has an affection for them and a care about them. Now, I said earlier that in my, not my final point would be something about how there's something uniquely absent in this verse. So let's talk about that. Um, James has a very deep concern about the way Christians live. James is by far the most practical epistle 
in the whole New Testament. What is unique about this first verse is that it's the only verse in all of James that isn't practical. It's the only verse. Every single verse in James is exhorting them how to live the Christian life except one one. Now, you know Paul's epistles. He, Paul begins with theology. He begins, he's unpacking the gospel in the whole first part of his epistles. And only then does he turn to the practical outworking of the gospel doctrines that he's just expounded. But that's not James at all. He never expounds the gospel. He just does the application from the get-go after verse 1. And the verse 1 doesn't have the gospel either. It just says he's a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then greetings. And then he jumps into application. This means that unlike Paul, James does not explicitly root his challenges and his exhortations and his teachings in the gospel. This is what disturbed Martin Luther so much about the book of James, along with his statements about justification. I'm not saying that James would be against how Paul approached things in his gospel, in his epistles. I'm sure that he would have agreed that all of the applications that he addresses in his epistle are definitely expressions of the gospel. All I'm saying is that he doesn't explicitly root them in the gospel, in his epistle. And I'd be surprised if James didn't later in his life, remember, he's a young man, grow in this area as he was exposed to other teachings and other experiences. And he began to see the dangers of Christian moralism, where Christianity just becomes a an expression of what is right and wrong in what we do, as opposed to being a gospel-centered faith. I think that from this we can conclude that it's not appropriate to dismiss or criticize a teaching or a sermon or a book which isn't explicitly rooted in the gospel. We've got to be very careful here. It's very possible for a preacher or any other Christian to be a moralizer in the name of Jesus. There are many of them around, and it's an easy trap to fall into. But we have to be careful about judging people's hearts. We certainly can't judge James. His letter is inspired scripture. It says just what God wanted it to say. I think not constantly rooting one's exhortations in the gospel is an appropriate concern to bring up to someone. But we must be very careful about accusing them then of divorcing the gospel from the exhortation. On the other hand, God did choose 
to include 13 of Paul's epistles in the New Testament and only one of James. So God's recipe for the New Testament included one part James and 13 parts Paul. This means, it seems to me, that Paul saw something God wanted emphasized over and over again to his people. But it also implies Paul didn't see everything. And that's why God included, in addition to Paul's letters, this letter by James, two by Peter, three by John, one by Jude, and one whose author is not identified, the author of the book of Hebrews. You see, there are two dangers when it comes to God's law. One danger is to overexalt the law, to exaggerate its role, to portray it as a means of justification, for instance, and in so doing, depreciate the things of the heart, faith, and love from which all else flows. The other danger, on the other side, is to depreciate or diminish the law of God, to fail to give it the place it deserves. One of these dangers makes the law everything, the other makes the law nothing. One neglects grace, the other cheapens grace. Paul, it seems to me, is more alert to the latter danger, whereas Paul seems more alert to the former danger. Now, why is this? Why were they so different? Well, I think it's probable that James and Paul had very different childhood experiences regarding the Jewish law. Think about it. Think about their childhoods and what we know about them. Think about James. We know that he grew up in the family of Jesus We know that they were humble people. They were poor people. They were considered backward. Nazareth was was known as a sort of backcountry kind of place. Whatever education James got, it was modest. He certainly didn't grow up in the, the ivory tower of academia. But he grew up in a family, it would seem, from what we know, which cherished God's law fervently and appropriately. Like we read about in Psalm 1. How blessed is the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord. On his law does he meditate day and night. Like Psalm 19. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. They are more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Like Psalm 119, which I won't quote to you. 176 verses. James actually refers to God's law in his epistle with the expression, the law of liberty. 
I just love that. Twice, 125 and 212, the law of liberty. You know, Pharisees, Judaizers, they don't refer to God's law as the law of liberty. So this gives us a picture of the kind of view James had about the law from his childhood and his experiences. Whether or not this is completely accurate, one thing is certainly true. James grew up standing next to a perfect model of righteous passion for God's law, as we see it in Psalm 1, Psalm 19, Psalm 119. So he understood this mentality, even of other members of the family, imperfectly exemplified it. And if anyone, you know, contradicted it, it would be corrected, if only by the example of his elder brother Jesus. Well, this, it seems to me, can explain why James emphasizes obedience to God's law without having much fear, it seems, of legalism. Think now about Paul. I think it's likely that Paul grew up in a family which loved God's law in a very different way. Let me read you three verses where Paul talks about his upbringing. Acts 22.3 I am a Jew born in Tarsus, but brought up in Jerusalem educated under Gamaliel, strictly according to the law of our fathers, being zealous for God just as you all are today. Romans 10, 2 and 3 elaborates a little bit more about this zeal for the law. He says, he's talking about the Jews, which he once was, like this. They have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. And then finally in Galatians 1, 13, 14. You have heard, Paul said, of my former manner of life in Judaism. How I used to persecute the church beyond measure and try to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. Those verses give us a good taste of the kind of way that Paul grew up thinking about the law. And I think it explains his reaction when he finally meets Christ to the misuse of God's law as a, you know, it's like before, it was like he'd never seen until he met Christ. He'd never seen zeal for God's law that was not stained with human pride. And self-righteousness. So, it seems to me we have to be very careful as we go through the book of James. We want to heed everything that God says through this epistle. But we also want to remind ourselves that it's all rooted in the gospel. The gospel of grace. God gave us Paul and he gave us James. When James wrote his epistle, he didn't yet have Paul. But we do. And so it is our privilege to constantly 
use what Paul teaches us, that all the moral commandments of God, all the things God requires of us, come from the gospel and come from living out the love that he has shown for us in Christ. We are blessed that we can have both. And we'll try to uh, read James in light of Paul as we go through it. Now, I apologize for uh, this morning. Um, for those who um, you know, don't find... This was a heavily informational sermon. I really uh, struggled with it. It's, it's hard to come up with a lot of application to verse 1 of, of uh, the book of James. Um, but but uh, I hope also that it, it is helpful to, to many. And from now on, you know, it will be all application because it will be, uh, we'll dive in starting next week. So uh, if it didn't hit you well because of that, um, I'm sorry. And I ask you to be patient. Let's go to prayer. Oh Lord, we thank you so much for the love that you have shown us in Christ. And we thank you for your zeal that we might prosper in the knowledge and in the grace of the Lord Jesus. And dear Lord, we commit this series to you. We pray that you would allow this series to be a time of feeding and building and strengthening and deepening for each one of us. We pray, dear Lord, that these, um, these weeks, your spirit would move in us and through us as we grapple with this precious part of your word that you have inspired and try to listen to you speaking to us from your heavenly pulpit. Give us ears to hear, O Lord. And now we thank you for the privilege of coming to the table of the Lord, which brings us back to what our Savior Jesus did for us upon the cross. and reminds us that no matter whether we understood your law or not, we disobeyed it. And therefore, We are guilty before you. And dear Lord, we thank you that in Christ our guilt has been removed. That he bore the penalty that we deserved for our guilt. So that we might be set free. So that the law might become for us a law of liberty. We rest upon him alone for our salvation, O Lord. And pray that we might meet him here at the table in the sacrament. We pray in his precious name. Amen.